The focus of our service this morning is Sarah Gerarman's book, Behind the Kitchen Door, published just this year, um, well now last year, within the last year, in 2013, in uh, I think it's Columbia University Press. And it's this year's UU Common Read. It's pretty short. It's less than 100, uh, less than 200 pages. Uh, we still have one copy left, so, but you can also order it wherever books are sold. But it's that book uh, chosen annually for all you use to read and discuss and potentially act upon. Last year's book was The New Jim Crow, so about the prison industrial complex. And before that was a book about immigration justice. And this book, though, for this year is dedicated to the more than 10 million restaurant workers nationwide who struggle daily to feed us. And early in the book, the author tells the story of what she calls her Matrix moment. Some of you may recall in the first Matrix film that the main character, Neo, has a transformative moment when he suddenly begins to see a much more complex and complicated reality behind the simplistic facade that he had experienced previously as a much simpler but incorrect or incomplete ordinary reality. And Gerarman's Matrix moment was the shift from taking, taking restaurants and going out to eat for granted as a simple, ordinary reality to looking behind the kitchen door, getting to know those people behind the kitchen door and becoming involved in the struggle for social and economic justice for workers in the restaurant industry. And she writes that after that, every time I ate out, I would look into the kitchen. For the first time, I saw every kitchen worker, every restaurant worker as a human being with a unique story, families, dreams, and desires. I would see these workers every time I ate out. Suddenly, I could see the whole world that I had never seen over a lifetime of eating in restaurants. And it's not that she didn't know that restaurant workers were human beings before, but she began to hear their stories and to experience them with much more depth. And my experience of reading her book was similar. I became more aware of the social and economic justice issues related to eating out at restaurants that I really hadn't considered previously in that depth. And I came to also know some concrete ways that we, individually and collectively, can make a difference to improve the lives of restaurant workers around our country. I had a related uh, matrix moment during my second year in divinity school at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Periodically, a speaker would be invited to address the seminary community uh, over lunch, and the administrator would entice us to show up by giving away free pizza. As you may know, free food has an almost magical power of attraction for many students. And at uh, this lunch in question, a little more than a decade ago, the speaker was a woman named Tara Pope. And I'd never heard of her before, but as she stepped up to the microphone, she could have easily passed as an average TCU student, young, blonde, white, female, with one major exception. She was wearing heavy-duty, the heavy-duty outdoor uniform typically worn by the university's mostly older, mostly Latino and Latina building and grounds crew. And as it turns out, Tara had graduated TCU two years earlier. Just two years ago, she had been one of those average TCU students as a religion major. And needing a summer job after graduation, she saw an opening on the building and grounds crew, applied, and was accepted. And she had really just figured it would be a good way to spend the summer, give her an excuse to stick around her alma mater, spend some time outside. Not your typical summer camp job exactly, but 
uh, maybe somewhat related. And she did actually find that work rewarding. But as she learned more about the lives of her coworkers, that's the part she hadn't planned on, she was disturbed that there, in many cases, their year-round hard labor for these privileged private school university students still left many of these workers on the buildings and grounds crew impoverished and in need of government assistance for their families to even scrape by at a subsistence level. Using her privilege as a former TCU student, she began organizing a living wage campaign for those university workers. And uh, she had planned on a summer job, but stayed in solidarity with her new co-workers. And that's the part of the story when I really began to sit up and pay attention and wasn't just there for the free pizza. I remember thinking that this is a you know, 24-year-old taking a fairly radical and unusual step of really making a difference in, in the lives of the people around her through solidarity with a marginalized group. She also, by the way, began tutoring her coworkers in English as a Second Language, ESL, and within two years of starting work for the TCU physical plant, Tara had helped raise base wages from $7.25 an hour to $8 an hour. Despite that improvement, however, at that time, according to the National Universal Living Wage Campaign, the estimated living wage for renting just a one-room apartment in the Fort Worth area was ten fifty an hour. As you may know, one definition of a living wage as opposed to a minimum wage is an hourly minimum given the cost of living, of, given the cost of living in your community such that if you're willing and able to work a 40-hour week, you should at least be able to afford a one-bedroom apartment. That's a pretty low bar, you would, you would think. For example, MIT actually has a living wage calculator, so you can go online and look at this around the country. It estimates that a single adult without, with a, without children living here in Frederick County today would need to earn at least $13.20 an hour to have a living wage, which is almost $6 more than the current $7.25 minimum wage. A single adult with one child would need to earn $25.02 an hour for a living wage. And in that scenario, the $7.25 minimum wage is a mere 25 cents more than a poverty wage. It's barely keeping that family out of poverty. And like this book's uh, author's uh, behind-the-kitchen-door epiphany from helping organize a protest for restaurant workers, Tara's speech at that lunch gathering was a matrix moment for me. And just as Gerarman could no longer take restaurant workers for granted and began to more fully see each worker's humanity and unique story, family, desires, and dreams, I could no longer walk past the university's building and grounds crew without remembering their struggle for a simple, decent, fair wage in exchange for a full day's, weeks, and years' work. And one small step I took not long afterwards was talking to my seminary's uh, Latina feminist theology professor about finding a place where I could volunteer to teach ESL, and I did that through graduation. And to expand our vantage point here to how that living wage campaign at TCU relates directly to the plight of many restaurant workers in our nations today, Gerarman writes that restaurant workers hold seven of the ten lowest paying occupations in the United States, earning less on average than workers from, uh, than from workers and all other domestic workers. In 2010, the medium wage of restaurant workers nationwide was $9.02 an hour, including tips. 
In 2009, restaurant workers made on average $15,092 for the year. As a result of these unjust low wages, Gerarman notes the discomforting irony that servers in our nation's restaurant industry use food stamps at almost double the rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce. Should taxpayers really be subsidizing the restaurant industry, which is growing so rapidly, to allow its employees to eat? Related, the forward to Behind the Kitchen Door is written by the food justice advocate uh, Eric Schlosser. Many of you may have read some of his books, uh, such as um, Fast Food Nation, which was an expose of the health, environmental, and animal rights consequences of how much of our fast food is produced. And Schlosser rightly points out the deep connection between caring about healthy, sustainable, local, organic food, which many people in this congregation care about, and caring about fair just, sustainable wages and benefits for human beings who serve that food to us at restaurants. As Gerarman notes, many of us have reached a point that would have seemed weird not that long ago, but we've now reached a point as a nation where it's, it's just second nature for many people to ask those underpaid, poorly treated restaurant workers about whether the food on the menu is fair trade, local, humanly, you know, humanely raised, etc. And the more I've thought about it, I think she really has a strong point that we need to learn to ask similar questions to how workers in restaurants are treated. Specifically, um, Restaurant Opportunity Center United, or Rock United for short, is an organization that Gerarman helped co-found and continues to run. It produces an annual Diner's Guide to Ethical Eating that suggests five specific areas that mo- are most helpful for patrons to ask about uh, in regard to restaurant justice. The first is, do you pay tipped workers a base wage of at least $5 an hour? So that's 70% of current minimum wage. And it's important to note that since 1991, the federal minimum wage for tipped workers has been frozen at $2.13 an hour. It's been frozen since 1991. Tipped workers include servers, runners, bussers, bartenders, barbacks, um, expediters. And the second question is, do you pay non-tipped workers at least $9 an hour? Non-tipped workers include host and hostesses, dishwashers, prep cooks, line cooks, and porters. Three, do you provide all your employees with paid sick leave? This question is important because, disturbingly, over 90% of the 4,300 restaurant workers um, surveyed by Rock United report not having paid sick leave. Over 90%. And two-thirds of those same people surveyed reported going to work to prepare, cook, and serve food while sick. I mean, there's not a big surprise there. Thus, just as local, sustainable, organic, fair trade food production results in healthier food for us as consumers, so too do fair, just working conditions result in a healthier restaurant experience for us as consumers, as, in addition to just being the right thing to do. The fourth question is, have at least 50% of your current employees been promoted internally? So what you're trying to do there is create a culture where the restaurant industry doesn't just have disposable workers, where there's chances to, you know, and, and to be in the hospitality industry if that's where you feel called to be. And it's interesting to read these stories in the book about people who really enjoy their work and providing hospitality for people, but they just want a simple, decent, fair, just wage. 
And finally, fifth, does your restaurant belong to Rock United's Restaurant Industry Roundtable, which is a group of employees working to promote the high road to profitability, not the low road to profitability that many in the restaurant industry are on? And if you're wondering in regard to the above question, yes, there is an app for that. Uh, In your order of service, underneath the sermon title, you'll see a link both to the Common Read website, where there's a huge amount of resources. In addition, you'll see a link to Rock United's website, where you can both read that diner's guide for free, as well as download an app if you have a smartphone to... Uh, that you know, will tell you wherever you are, you can just click and see if there are, from your geographic location, any restaurants that meet Rock United's standards. The, and, and their standards are you get a silver prize just for meeting two of those five criteria. I mean, it's so bad right now, you just have to meet two of the five criteria to get a silver star, or the gold prize for answering yes to three of the five criteria. They don't even have categories for four and five because there's, you know, you're not really getting there. We're, it's baby steps here. Part of the problem for now, however, is that this, gra- this grassroots movement is fairly early on in the process, so it's really only prominent right now in 10 major cities. There's these Rock United centers that are led by grassroots movement modeled on what um, Gerard Amun started. So if you're in the Bay Area, Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles, Miami, Detroit, New Orleans, New York, Philadelphia, or D.C., that app's going to be actually quite useful to you. It's going to be less useful to you in, in other cities for now. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, you can begin to spread the word about Gerarman's book so, and the Free Diner's Guide app and this Rock um, United website. So if you haven't share that with the owner of your favorite restaurant, maybe here in Frederick or around, or if you know people that are in the restaurant industry, have friends and family members, if you're in the restaurant industry, you know, consider reading the book, sharing it with others, sharing that Rock United website, sharing the Diner's Guide. So these questions, these five questions can become a lot more commonplace. And if you do discover that there are restaurants in and around Frederick who say, yes, actually we do two or, you know, one or two or three or more of those things, let me know, and I'm glad to help spread the word about which restaurants in Frederick are following some of these uh, fair practices and, and choosing the high road to profitability. Closer to home, you can also visit the website dignity at darden.org, and that'll be in the sermon manuscript that we'll put in our website. That's a current action that Rock United is mobilizing to put pressure on unjust practices in the Darden Restaurant Group, which is the world's largest full-service restaurant group. We have some of those here in Frederick. It includes popular chains such as Capital Grill, Red Lobster, Olive Garden, Longhorn Steakhouse, and more. And that title, Dignity at Darden, that resonates deeply with our UU first principle of the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And if Rock United is successful in creating cha- change in that Darden restaurant group, we could really see a domino effect happen throughout our country and in smaller chains. And I already see evidence um, that change is possible in just how swiftly we've seen change in the last few decades. If you think back, it wasn't that long ago when you almost never saw a restaurant on uh, a reference on menus about whether an item was vegetarian, vegan, gluten-free, locally sourced, fair trade, all these other um, categories, organic. And now you see that almost everywhere. There's an appendix at the bottom of the menu that you have to consult to understand the code. And restaurants made that shift as customers' questions to the waitstaff made clear that they wanted those options and were willing to pay more for them. And 
in fighting for restaurant justice, it doesn't actually mean that you have to pay that much more. Uh, if you go to some of these D.C. restaurants, like Busboys and Poets, that's the one I'm most familiar with, I'm actually part of a monthly minister's group that meets in College Park, and we you know, have chosen for, the, you know, for many years to go to, because they've existed before I joined them a year and a half ago, in, in choosing Busboys and Poets as a place that we go to after our monthly meetings for lunch. And we take turns in picking up the tab annually, and I just coincidentally picked up the tab at this, the last one, and I think it was, you know, eight UU ministers eating lunch, and we all had, you know, as much or more than we could eat. I think it was like $80, including an 18% gratuity, which they put in. So, you know, so for you know, just food served justly and fairly, it doesn't have to be that expensive if we, you know, just shift how we're thinking about some of these. Um, Factors, And I agree with the Rock United movement that there is real potential for consciousness raising, that treating workers um, with, with cruelty is, is equally unhealthy and unsustainable for everyone concerned in the long run as mistreating animals and the environment. And the good news, again, is that the change is already happening. The New York Times ran an article a few months ago about major established trend-setting restaurants around the country who have stopped taking tips and are instead incorporating that cost into the price on the menu or as a surcharge. One restaurant communicates this change with a note at the bottom of the check that says, service staff are fully compensated by their salary, therefore gratuities are not accepted. This article also mentions another vital contributing factor that I think it's a little bit like the dirty little secret that doesn't get mentioned that often, but it's another vital contributing factor to the movement for restaurant justice, and that is the increased use of credit cards. One reason restaurant workers likely didn't organize earlier uh, against this um, federal minimum wage not being raised from 213 since 1991 is that tips used to be in cash. And they were not necessarily reported on income taxes. I'm sure that's not the case for anyone you know. Uh, But now that tipping on credit cards is almost ubiquitous, those electronic um, tips leave a paper trail. So ironically, the rapacious credit card industry may actually be the factor that helps tip the scale to, to motivate restaurant workers to demand fair compensation for their labor. And there's plenty of profit to be shared. To give one among many prominent examples, Business Insider calculated that McDonald's could double the wages. They could double the wages of all its restaurant employees for approximately $3 billion. And while $3 billion annually sounds like a lot of money, this would knock down McDonald's operating profit annually to a healthy $5.5 billion dollars. And presumably the reason McDonald's doesn't uh, make this choice is this idea that is widespread in the business community of radical profit maximization, that McDonald's shouldn't pay its employees a penny more than it absolutely has to, is how this theory goes. McDonald's should pay these people as little as possible and deliver as much profit as possible to its shareholders. The only purpose of a company, after all, beyond being a person, is to make money for its shareholders. And McDonald's should absolutely not raise the price of its Big Macs by so much as a penny because it would then sell fewer of them. The ethical error here, as you've heard me say before, is that the evisceration of the common good that results from a greedy, single-minded focus on the bottom line of profit alone. Instead, we need what many people call a triple bottom line. People, planet, profit. Profit motive is absolutely still part of the equation. We're human beings. We're not perfect. Profit motive works. But it must be balanced with how we treat our fellow human beings and this one planet. 
Ultimately, of course, we're talking about what we're talking about regarding restaurant justice is connected to the larger historic labor movement. And these days, any mention of workers' rights is liable to invoke a, a charge of inciting class warfare. But as that great and highly successful capitalist Warren Buffett said a few years ago, there is class, class warfare, all right, but it's my class, the rich class, that's making war, and we're winning. And as the bumper sticker philosophy tells us, the labor movement from the folks who bought you the weekend. Or if you like the 40-hour work week, thank a union member. I encourage you to visit the Rock United website um, on your order of service if you're curious to learn more about this growing grassroots movement for restaurant worker justice. And I similarly encourage you to explore the connections between that struggle and the larger movement we're seeing um, for an increased minimum wage for all workers to be more of a living wage. Just this past Wednesday, for example, in the Frederick News Post, there was a front-page article about Governor um, Martin O'Malley announcing that he will focus on raising the state's minimum wage during his last full legislative session as Maryland's governor. And as with last year's focus on legalizing same-sex marriage and the DREAM Act, my hope and the hope of organizations like the UU Legislative Ministry for Maryland is that UUs in this area will partner with other progressive religious and secular groups to help demonstrate that there is grassroots popular support for greater social, economic, and environmental justice in our state and beyond. Um, Jim Wallace, the social justice advocate, likes to say that you always see politicians with you know licking their fingers and with their finger in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. So the goal with UU Legislative Ministry of Maryland is to change the direction of the wind, to give politicians the political cover to make some of the decisions and, that they would like to make if it doesn't cost them too much politically. So there's much work to be done, but it's good work. It's good work, and I'm grateful to be with you on this journey.